Part three of Five Months at Anzac by Joseph Livesley Beeston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Air fighting. The German aeroplanes threw over our gully pretty regularly. At first we were rather perturbed, as they had a nasty habit of dropping bombs, but as far as I know, they never did any damage. Almost all the bombs dropped into the water. One of them sent some steel arrows down, about six or eight inches in length, with a metal point something like a carpenter's bit. In order to conceal our tents, we covered them with holly bushes, cut and placed over the canvas. Our aeroplanes were constantly up, and were easily recognised by a red ring painted underneath, while the torb was adorned with a large black cross. But after we had been there a little time, we found it was not necessary to use glasses in order to ascertain whose flying machine was over us. We were able to tell by listening, as their engines had a different sound from those belonging to us. Our aeroplanes were the source of a great deal of annoyance to the Turks. They continually fired at them, but as far as I was able to judge, never went within cooey of one. The bursts of shrapnel away in the air made a pretty sight, puffs of white smoke like bits of cotton wool in succession, and the aeroplanes sailing unconcernedly along. It appears to be very difficult to judge distance away in the air, and even more difficult to estimate the rate at which an object is travelling. What became of the shell cases of the shrapnel used to puzzle us. One day, Hawkley remarked that it was peculiar that none fell on us. I replied, surely there is plenty of room other than where we are for them to fall. Scarcely were the words uttered that down came one close by. We knew it was the case from above and not one fired direct, because the noise was so different. The hydroplanes used by the Navy were interesting. Floating on the water, they would gather way and soar upward like a bird. Their construction was different from that of the aeroplanes. A captive balloon was used a good deal to give the ranges for the warships. It was carried on the forepart of a steamer, and was, I believe, in connection with it by telephone or wireless. THE OFFICER'S MESS we kept up the custom of having an officer's mess right through the campaign. When we first landed, when everything was in confusion, each man catered for himself, but it was a lonely business and not conducive to health. When a man cooked his own rations, he probably did not eat much. So a dugout was made close to the hospital tent, and we all had our meals together. A rather pathetic incident occurred one day, just after we had finished lunch, three of us were seated, talking of the meals the Australia provided, when a fragment of shell came through the roof onto the table and broke one of the enamel plates. This may seem a trivial affair and not worth grousing about, but the sorry part of it was that we only had one plate each, and this loss entailed one man having to wait till the others had finished their banquet. I have elsewhere alluded to the stacks of food on the beach. Amongst them bully beef was largely in evidence. Ford, our cook, was very good in always endeavouring to disguise the fact that bully was up again. He used to fry it. Occasionally he got curry powder from the Indians and persuaded us that the resultant compound was curried goose. 
but it was bully beef all the time. Then he made what he called rissoles, onions entered largely into their framework, and when you opened them you wanted to get out into the fresh air. Preserved potatoes too were very handy. We had them with our meat, and what remained over we put treacle on and ate as pancakes. Walkley and Betts obtained flour on several occasions, and made very presentable pancakes. John Harris, too, was a great forager. He knew exactly where to put his hand on decent biscuits, and the smile with which he landed his booty made the goods toothsome in the extreme. Harris had a gruesome experience. One day he was seated on a hill talking to a friend, when a shell took the friend's head off and scattered his brains over Harris. Before leaving the description of the officer's mess, I must not omit to introduce our constant companions, the flyers. As Australians, we rather prided ourselves on our judgment regarding these pests, and in Gallipoli we had every opportunity of putting our faculties to the test. There were flies, big horse flies, blue flies, green flies, and flies. They turned up everywhere and with everything. When one was eating one's food with the right hand, one had to keep the left going with a wisp, and even then the flies beat us. Then we always had the comforting reflection of those dead Turks not far away, the distance being nothing to a fly. In order to get a little peace at one meal in the day, our dinner hour was put back till dusk. Men wounded had a horrible time. Fortunately, we had a good supply of mosquito netting purchased with the Red Cross money. It was cut up into large squares, and each bearer had a supply. The Armistice On the 23rd of May, anyone looking down the coast could see a man on Gabateep waving a white flag. He was soon joined by another occupied in a like manner. Some officers came into the ambulance and asked for a loan of some towels. We gave them two which were pinned together with safety pins. White flags don't form part of the equipment of Australia's army. Seven mounted men had been observed coming down Gabateep, and they were joined on the beach by our four. The upshot was that one was brought in blindfolded to General Birdwood. Shortly after we heard it announced that a truce had been arranged for the following day in order to bury the dead. The following morning, Major Millard and I started from our right and walked up and across the battlefield. It was a stretch of country between our lines and those of the Turks, and was designated no man's land. At the extreme right there was a small farm. The owner's house occupied part of it, and was just as the man had left it. Our guns had knocked it about a good deal. In close proximity was a field of wheat in which there were scores of dead Turks. As these had been dead anything from a fortnight to three weeks, their condition may be better imagined than described. One body I saw was lying with the leg shattered. He had crawled into a depression in the ground and lay with his great coat rolled up for a pillow. The stains on the ground showed that he had bled to death and it can only be conjectured how long he lay there before death relieved him of his suffering. Scores of the bodies were simply riddled with bullets. Midway between the trenches a line of Turkish sentries was posted. Each was in a natty blue uniform with gold braid and top boots, and all were done up to the nines. 
each stood by a white flag on a pole stuck into the ground. We buried all the dead on our side of this line, and they performed a similar office for those on their side. Stretchers were used to carry the bodies, which were all placed in large trenches. The stench was awful, and many of our men wore handkerchiefs over their mouths in their endeavours to escape it. I counted two thousand dead Turks, one I judged to be an officer of rank, for the bearers carried him shoulder-high down a gully to the rear. The ground was absolutely covered with rifles and equipment of all kinds, shell-cases and caps and ammunition clips. The rifles were all collected and the bolts removed to prevent their being used again. Some of the Turks were lying right on our trenches, almost in some of them. The Turkish sentries were peaceable-looking men, stolid in type, and of the peasant class mostly. We fraternised with them and gave them cigarettes and tobacco. Some Germans were there, but they regarded us with malignant eyes. When I talked to Colonel Pope about it afterwards, he said that the Germans were mean, not a beggars. Why, said he most indignantly, they came and had a look into my trenches. I asked, what did you do? He replied, well, I had a look at theirs. Torpedoing of the Triumph the day after the armistice, at fifteen minutes afternoon, I was in my dugout when one of the men exclaimed that something was wrong with the triumph. I ran out and was in time to see the fall of water sent up by the explosive. It was a beautiful calm day, and the ship was about a mile and a quarter from us. She had a decided list towards us, and it was evident that something was radically wrong. With glasses one could see the men lined up in two ranks as if on parade, without the least confusion. Then two destroyers went over and put their noses on each side of the big ship's bows. All hands from the Triumph marched aboard the destroyers. She was gradually heeling over, and all movables were slipping into the sea. One of the destroyers barked three or four shots at something which we took to be the submarine. In fifteen minutes the Triumph was keel up, the water spurting from her different vent pipes as it was expelled by the imprisoned air. She lay thus for seventeen minutes, gradually getting lower and lower in the water, when quietly her stern rose, and she slipped underneath, not a ripple remaining to show where she had sunk. I have often read of the vortex created by a ship sinking, but as far as I could see it, there was in this case not the slightest disturbance. It was pathetic to see this beautiful ship torpedoed, and in thirty-two minutes at the bottom of the sea. I believe the only lives lost were those of men injured by the explosion. Meanwhile, five destroyers came up for Hellas, at a terrific speed, the water curling from their bows. They and all the other destroyers circled round and round the bay, but the submarine lay low and got off. His, her commander certainly did his job well. THE DESTROYERS After the torpedoing of the Triumph here, and the Majestic in the Straits, all the big ships left and went to Madras, as there was no sense in leaving vessels costing over a million each to the mercy of submarines. This gave the destroyers the chance of their lives. Up to this they had not been allowed to speak, 
but now they took on much of the bombardment required. They were constantly nosing about, and the slightest movement on the part of the Turks brought forth a bang from one of their guns. If a Turk so much as winked, he received a rebuke from the destroyer. The naval men all appeared to have an unbounded admiration for the Australians as soldiers, and boats rarely came ashore without bringing some fresh bread or meat or other delicacy. Their tobacco, too, was much sought after. It is made up from the leaf and rolled up in spun yarn. The flavour is full, and after a pipe of it, well, you feel you have had a smoke. THE INDIAN REGIMENTS We had a good many Indian regiments in the Army Corps. The mountain battery occupied a position on Pluggey's Plateau in the early stage of the campaign, and they had a playful way of handing out the shrapnel to the Turks. It was placed in boiling water to soften the resin in which the bullets are held. By this means the bullets spread more readily, much to the joy of the sender, and the discomfiture of Abdul. The Indians were always very solicitous about their wounded. When one came in to be attended to, he was always followed by two of his chums bearing one a water-bottle, the other some food, for their caste prohibits their taking anything directly from our hands. When the medicine had to be administered, the man came in, knelt down, and opened his mouth, and the medicine was poured into him without the glass touching his lips. Food was given in the same way. I don't know how they got on when they were put on the ship. When one was killed, he was wrapped up in a sheet, and his comrades carried him shoulder-high to their cemetery, for they had a place set apart for their own dead. They were constantly squatting on their haunches, making a sort of pancake. I tasted one, but it was too fatty, and I spat it out, much to the amusement of the Indian. One of them saw the humorous side of life, he described to Mr. Henderson the different attitudes adopted toward Turkish shells by the British, Indian, and Australian soldiers. British Tommy, said he, Turk shell, Tommy says, ah! Turk shell, Indian says, oosh! Australians say, where the hell did that come from? The divisional ammunition column was composed of Sikhs, and they were a brave body of men. It was their job to get the ammunition to the front line, so they were always fair targets for the Turks. The mules were hitched up in threes, one in rear of the other, each mule carrying two boxes of ammunition. The train might number anything from fifteen to twenty mules. All went along at a trot, constantly under fire. When a mule was hit he was unhitched, the boxes of ammunition were rolled off, and the train proceeded. Nothing stopped them. It was the same if one of the men became a casualty. He was put to one side to wait the stretcher-bearers. But almost always one of the other men appeared with a water-bottle. They were very adept in the management of mules. Frequently a block would occur when the mule tone occupied a sap. The mules at some time became fractious and manipulated their hind legs with the most marvellous precision. Certainly they placed a good deal of weight in their arguments. But in the midst of it all, when one could see nothing but mules' heels, straps, and ammunition boxes, the Indian drivers would talk to their charges and soothe them down. 
I don't know what they said, but presume it resembled the cooing, coaxing, and persuasive tongue of our bullock-driver. The mules were all stalled in the next gully next to ours, and one afternoon three or four of us were sitting admiring the sunset when a shell came over. It was different from that usually sent by Abdul, being seemingly formed of paper and black rag. Someone suggested, too, that there was a good deal of faultiness in the powder. From subsequent inquiries we found that what we saw going over our dugouts was mule. A shell had burst right in one of them, and the resultant mass was what we had observed. The Salon Tea Planters Corps was bivouacked just below us, and was having tea at the time. Their repast was mixed with mule. Donkeys formed part of the population of the peninsula. I am referring here to the four-footed variety, though, of course, others were in evidence at times. The neddies were docile little beasts, and did a great deal of transport work. When we moved out in August, orders were issued that all equipment was to be carried. I pointed out a drove of ten of these little animals, which appeared handy and without an owner and suggested to the men that they would look well with our brand on. It took very little time to round them up, cut a cross in the hair on their back, and place a brassard round their ears. They were then our property. The other type of donkey generally indulged in what was known as furfies or beachograms. Furfy originated in Broadmeadows, Victoria. The second title was born in the peninsula. The least breath of rumour rang from mouth to mouth in the most astonishing way. Talk about a bush telegraph. It is a tortoise in its movements compared with a beachogram. The number of times that Akibaba fell cannot be accurately stated, but it was twice a day at least. A man came in to be dressed on one occasion. Suddenly some pretty smart rifle fire broke out in the night. Hell, said the man, what's up? Oh, said Captain Dawson, there's a war on. Didn't you hear about it? The Swimming One thing that was really good in Anzac was the swimming. At first we used to dive off the barges. Then the engineers built Watson's Pier, at the end of which the water was fifteen feet deep and as clear as crystal, so that one could see every pebble at the bottom. At times the water was very cold, but always invigorating. General Birdwood was an enthusiastic swimmer, but he always caused me a lot of anxiety. That pier was well covered by Beachy Bill, and one never knew when he might choose to give it his attention. This did not deter the general. He came down most regularly, sorted out to the end, went through a lot of sando exercises, and finally jumped in. He then swam out to a boy moored about a quarter of a mile away. On his return he was most leisurely in drying himself. Had anything happened to him, I don't know what the men would have done, for he was adored by everyone. Swimming was popular with all hands. Early in the campaign we had a Turkish attack one morning. It was over by midday and an hour later most of the men were in swimming. I think it not unlikely that some of the missing men were due to this habit. They would come to the beach and leave their clothes and identity discs ashore, 
and sometimes they were killed in the water. In this case there was no possibility of ascertaining their names. It often struck me that this might account for some whose whereabouts were unknown. While swimming, the opportunity was taken by a good many to soak their pants and shirt, inside which there was, very often, more than the owner himself. I saw one man fish his pants out. After examining the seams, he said to his pal, "'They're not dead yet.' His pal replied, "'Never mind, you gave them a, a fright.' These insects were a great pest, and I would counsel friends sending parcels to the soldier to include a tin of insecticide. It was invaluable when it could be obtained. I got a fright myself one night. A lot of things were doing the Melbourne Cup inside my blanket. The horrible thought suggested itself that I had got them too, but a light revealed the presence of fleas. These were very large, able-bodied animals and became our constant companion at night-time. In fact, one could only go to sleep after dosing the blanket with insecticide. My little dog Paddy enjoyed the swim almost as much as I did. He was a great favourite with everybody but the Provost Marshal. This official was a terror for red tape, and an order came out that dogs were to be destroyed. This meant the military police were after Paddy. However, I went to General Birdwood, who was very handsome about it, and gave me permission to keep the little chap. Almost immediately after he was reprieved, he ran down to the Provost Marshal's dugout and barked at him. Paddy was very nearly human. One day we were down at usual when Beachy Bill got busy, and I had to leave the pier with only boots and a smile on. I took refuge behind my old friend the biscuits, and Paddy ran out to each shell, barking till it exploded. Finally one burst over him, and a bullet perforated his abdomen. His squeals were piteous. He lived till next day, but he got a soldier's burial. Turkish Prisoners We saw a good many Turkish prisoners at one time or another, and invariably fraternised with them. They were kept inside a barbed-wired enclosure with a guard over them, but there was no need to prevent their escape. They would not leave if they got the chance. On one occasion twelve of them were told to go some distance into the scrub and bring in some firewood. No one was sent with them, the idea being to encourage them to go to their lines and persuade some of the Turks to desert to us. But they were like the cat, they all came back with the firewood. I saw two of our men on one occasion bringing in a prisoner. They halted on the hill opposite us, and one of them went to headquarters to ascertain how the prisoner was to be disposed of. In a very short time he was surrounded by fourteen or fifteen of our soldiers, trying to carry on conversation and giving him cigarettes and in fact anything he would accept. An hour before they had been trying their best to shoot one another. In one of the attacks on our left the Turks were badly beaten off and left a lot of their dead close up to our trenches. As it was not safe to get over and remove the bodies, a number of boat-hooks was obtained, and with them the bodies were pulled into our trenches. One of the bodies proved to be a live Turk, who had been unable to get back to his line for fear of being shot by our men. He was blindfolded and sent down to the compound with the other prisoners. The difficulty of obtaining sufficient exercise was very great at times. 
we only held a piece of territory under a square mile in extent, and none of it was free from shell or rifle fire, so that our perambulations were carried on under difficulty. Major Meikle and I had our regular walk before breakfast. At first we went down the beach towards Gabatepe, and then sat for a while talking and trying to see what we could see. But a sniper apparently used to watch for us, for we were invariably saluted by the ping of a rifle in the distance, and the dust of the bullet in close proximity to our feet. We concluded that if we continued to walk in this direction someone would be getting hurt. So our walks were altered to the road round Pluggey's Plateau. We were seated there one morning when our howitzer in the gully was fired, and we felt that the shell was not far from where we sat. We went down to the battery, and I interrogated some of the gunners. "'How far off the top of that hill does that shell go?' said I. "'About a yard, sir,' replied the man. "'One time we hit it.' I asked him if it would be convenient for the battery to elevate a bit if we were sitting there again. End of part three.